Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. That was Tom Morello getting us started, singing a song of freedom. Singer, songwriter, actor, guitar wizard, artist, and political activist, Tom's consistent soundtrack, day by day and year after year, is a heartfelt and multi-layered cry for freedom. Thanks for all you do and for who you are, Tom. We appreciate it. I'm Bill Ayers, and Malik Alim and I are gathered here with you under the tree for our seminar on freedom. We breathe deeply, link arms, and imagine ourselves to be active members of an energetic and insurgent community, arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder into the next struggle toward freedom. We continue to ask ourselves, and we ask you, where in the world are we, and where are we in the world? How can we best name this political moment? What is to be done? We're bound together in this fugitive space, looking uneasily at the world we've inherited and busy in projects of repair and revolution. We open each episode with a poem, our by now familiar practice. It's a time of reflection and a moment of Zen. Today's poem is an excerpt from September's song by the literary giant and truth teller Lucille Clifton. It was written after 9-11, but it resonates with renewed power today. thunder and lightning and our world is another place no day will ever be the same no blood untouched they know this storm in other wares israel ireland palestine but god has blessed america we sing and god has blessed america to learn that no one is exempt the world is one all fear is one all life all death all one. This is not the time, I think, to ask who is allowed to be American America. Some of us know we have never felt safe. All of us Americans weeping, as some of us have wept before. Is it treason to remember? Our second regular feature is a stream of consciousness free write, where we encourage you to write a short, authentic, and spontaneous piece from nowhere, the nowhere of the underground and the nowhere of utopia. Thinking about Clifton's meditation on America and Americans, history and reality, fear and hope, and remembering Childish Gambino's provocative music video called This is America, write your own poem chant, video, essay, lecture, speech, commencement address, incantation, exhortation, or short story with this title, This is America. Okay, start writing, and we'll be here whenever you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt, or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Of course, I think we must always begin by trying to name this political moment. Never easy and never a straightforward answer. Always filled with conflict and contradiction. Always dynamic. On the make. On the move. Different yesterday and changed by tomorrow. But I do think we're witnessing a rolling fascist, white supremacist insurrection and uniting with those opposed to fascism and the naked rise of white power is in this moment both sensible and necessary. That doesn't mean giving up our principles and our beliefs, our long-term goals and our efforts, but it does mean linking arms with those who will oppose the white supremacist push. And it also doesn't mean falling into the ready-made traps of, for example, calls for law and order or new restrictions on speech or more repressive legislation, all of which will backlash into the movement for liberation and human progress sooner or later. But it does mean asking the cops to protect the squad and the other legislators who were in real, palpable danger. When our comrades can design and implement do-it-yourself defense, fine. 
the deacons for defense in the South were not perfect, but they were important. But recognizing the contradictions, I want to demand that the cops do their fucking job for a change. And still, I want to imagine at the same time and work toward a society where the prisons are abolished and the cops are seen as an anachronism from a long ago time. In 1966, I walked through Klan country with a large multiracial group from Cleveland to Columbus, 10 days of marching, demanding that the state provide poor kids food and clothing. Every night our leaders met with grudging local cops, and they did protect us periodically, accompanying us now and then as we marched. Nevertheless, crosses were burned every night outside the churches where we slept, and the cops disappeared one morning, and suddenly two cars zoomed toward the line and veered away at the last minute. Collusion, of course, but still, we asked the cops to protect us. Is that a contradiction? Yes. Is it hypocrisy? No. The wonderful crazed Walt Whitman said, Do I contradict myself? Very well. I contradict myself. I'm large. I contain contradictions. Insurrectionary tactics are morally neutral on their own. It's the goal of the insurrection that matters. The French, Cuban, Haitian, and Russian revolutions were emancipatory insurrections against the old order, rebellions against colonialism and monarchy, working to move humanity forward. And I approve but I detest some other insurrections against state power. The uprising by the White League that sought to overthrow the biracial reconstruction government of Louisiana in 1894. The overthrow of the government in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898. Hitler twice and Mussolini. The Confederates were rebels in the face of U.S. power, but their crime wasn't taking on the Union. Their crime was that their singular purpose, the freedom to own black people as property to enrich themselves, was catastrophic. So do you believe that one should have equal access to rights, society's wealth, and enjoyment of life regardless of race, nationality, gender, background, sexuality, religion, ability, and on and on? Or do you believe in a rigidly enforced hierarchy with white supremacy and male privilege in the lead? That's the division, not what you think of cops in general or storming a government building in the abstract. If that's so, then you can oppose an insurrection by white nationalists fully, wholeheartedly, but support disability activists who get evicted by Capitol Hill police for protesting Medicaid cuts. And you can take to the streets in the name of Black Lives Matter. One is in defense of humanity, the other is not. Seems sensible to me. And if it's a contradiction, very well. I'm large. I contain contradictions. It's time for our guest speaker series, Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours, where we've talked to folks who can help us think more deeply about this political and historic moment, about freedom and justice, about building a movement from the ground up, and about what is to be done. We release our radical imaginations and ask both, what's going on? And then, most importantly, what is to be done? I'm grateful and excited to be joined today by legendary freedom fighter Daphne Muse, whose life in struggle, from the civil rights, black power, and pan-Africanist movements to the fight for women's liberation and disability rights, illuminates while it inspires. Her experiences and her wisdom are sought after by activists and organizers around the world, and I'm humbled and honored that you've agreed to join us here under the tree, Daphne. Welcome, Daphne Muse. I'm tickle black to be under the tree. <laughs> I am so thrilled. You know, you know that reference better than most folks I talk to because the tr the reference is really to the freedom schools yes. and to and to the moment when uh, education, popular education, burst out all over uh, as a as a tool, as a tactic to mobilize folks to fight for justice. And it was a a thrilling moment, uh, and it's a moment we're still still living in. Uh, yes. One of the things I'd say about you, and it's certainly true for me, is that while we've been in the struggle a long time, we're not nostalgic for a ship that already left the shore. We're living here, we're living now, and we're looking forward. So I, I think I want to start in the present tense. And here we are one week after a white supremacist insurrection erupted in the nation's capital. I'd like you to, to talk a bit, reflect a bit on the moment we're living through. How do you make sense of it? Where are we on the map of the universe? 
Well, there have been skirmishes, as you well know, ongoing since 1776. Right. Or before. <laughs> or before, actually. Yeah. yeah. And um, those skirmishes have imploded. They imploded last week in a full-fledged um, insurrection that geographically took place in the capital, but has been taking place in the hearts and minds of so many um, for centuries. And there were also insurrections in Capitol buildings um, in other cities, in Sacramento. Um, I believe there was one in Milwaukee. Uh, and what is so, there's so many things about this that are absolutely puzzling, baffling. Um, the fact that the state capital is where the business of a city or a state is conducted and where people's lives pivot the day-to-day of life, getting a wedding, a marriage license, um, taking care of tax-related business. Um, and so there's a part of this where the logic of day-to-day life does not compute in the heads and minds of the people that are doing this. They also don't recognize the that they really are tools being used. The mm-hmm. fact that they were incited to, to move this insurrection into the citadel of um, our struggling to be democracy because we've mm-hmm. never been a democracy. It's right. always been a struggle. Mm-hmm. And that they would tear apart that symbol um, there's a part of that that's a bit baffling, but on the other hand, you can't bring logic <laughs> into this situation for people who are seeking what they think is power that they will hold, and it is power that they will never hold. They are tools. Um, but isn't it isn't it uh, isn't it an insurrection to prevent? the creation of a, of a multiracial democracy? Isn't it a white supremacist insurrection? It's a white supremacist insurrection where, unfortunately, I, I shouldn't say unfortunately, it's a white supremacist insurrection where a handful of people of color are also involved. We cannot overlook that. Mm-hmm. Um, that the South Vietnamese flag appeared, mm. that that was a, a, jo- a really jaw-dropping moment mm-hmm. um, that this was planned, how well thought out it was. That's another discussion because I think it really, in some ways, it was a Larry Curley and Moku. Mm, it did have that aspect, no that, doubt. That aspect to it, yeah. for real. Except at the same time, they were deadly serious. And as you and I both know, there's always been a base for white supremacist activism in this country, always. always. And, and yet I've never seen it in my lifetime quite as organized, quite as mobilized, and the main organizer being the resident of the White House. That, that's unique. That is absolutely unique. Yes. And but, I think his actions, we have to remember, to be clear, his actions were orchestrated by Miller, mm-hmm. Iwanka, and Kushner, mm-hmm. that they, their hands, along with some of the CEOs that were there, that this was not just a ragtag crew, that there were people in high places who were a part of this insurrection, who physically, not just logistically, but physically were a part of the insurrection. Um, as someone who grew up in Washington, D.C. and lived, born, grew up and lived there for many, many years, I, th- there's a particular kind of pain that comes with seeing this destruction. And now seeing my family, seeing friends, seeing former colleagues living in another level of lockdown compounded by the pandemic, which by the way, by the way, my grandchildren call it the panorama. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> Perfect. They said this has given them a lens onto the world like nothing else they've ever lived through. Mm-hmm. And all of the conversations that Anya, my daughter, and I have been having about the movement because she's an equity officer from a, she's the equity officer in the county. And she's really aware of the history and the currency of the times. Here was a white supremacist insurrection. There were people with Confederate flags marauding through the Capitol. And, you know, I often think insurrections are neutral. Some insurrections we support. Uh, The Haitian insurrection, the American Revolution, the French Revolution. And then there are insurrections like Hitler's insurrection or Mussolini's or... The, you know, the North Carolina insurrection where they murdered all those folks who created a democracy. So here we see a white supremacist insurrection with T-shirts saying Camp Auschwitz with Confederate flags, with American flagpoles being used to beat police officers. And what's the goal? The goal is to stop a very ceremonial moment in, it, in administering a, uh, the results of an election in which the, the fascist was defeated. So... I just think it's really important that we look at this insurrection and ask ourselves, where did it come from? And if it takes this to make the Republican Party sit up and take notice, the rot inside the political system must be deep and vast. I mean, must be huge, the, the, the rottenness of the system. I think the rot has been there I mean, you can document the rot over, I think, especially starting with Reagan. I think the foundation was beginning, the foundation of the Republican Party, the, the, the rotting of it. Well, Nixon, certainly, but Reagan upped the game of the rot and he mm-hmm. poured more um, poison into it. Mm. and that the demographics of the nation, of the country, because we've never been a nation of of the country, the demographics shifted so that it stoked tremendous fear and that the fear was fed, um, the hatred, the vitriol were fed constantly. This This was not something that happened overnight. This got a lot of fuel put on it. Um, by members of not only the far right, but some conservatives as well. And um, it exploded mm. last week. It simply, not simply, it absolutely exploded. Right. You know, you you and I both think that language matters. And um, a lot of people have been saying this is not us. This is not America. I want you to put on your historian's hat a little bit because you've lived so much of the important historical moments of the last 50 years. And what do you say to people who say, this is not who we are? What do you say to that? Well, you turn the pages of history, like you said earlier. You, you read the works of Howard Zinn. You listen to the speeches of Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, you go back and you read the documents that came out of um, the archives at Auschwitz, that came out of the concentration camps uh, where the Japanese uh, were interred. You look at the documents related to the indigenous people who lived on this land. There's so many examples of um, the history speaking volumes to this really is who we are. This is who we have been for a very long time. You know, you talked about the dog whistles of Nixon and Goldwater and Reagan, and then the kind of unvarnished uh, white power of Trump and his followers. And where do you think we're headed? I I mean, do you think this is going to, we've gone through George Floyd's murder, the account, you know, the, the uprising after that, Breonna Taylor, the serial assassination of black folks, and then, and also along with that, the kind of uh, the incidents in Central Park, for example, where the the pretense at innocence gets exposed. Are we at a moment where racial reckoning can take a, a, a substantive, qualitative leap forward? Do you think that's where we're headed? 
given the unvarnished white power that we're seeing? Or are we going to see the cloak put back over it and the same old shit? I don't think the cloak can be put back over it. I really don't. I think too many people are now involved in ripping the cloak, not only off, but tearing the cloak to shreds mm. to make sure that this is, this is not a direction in which we go. That does not mean that the efforts to keep the cloak on it aren't going to continue because this, this refrain resonating for many in Congress now in the Senate saying, uh, well, why can't we have reconciliation? No, we should not impeach him. Yes, we should impeach him. Mm -hmm. And reconciliation cannot occur until you look this directly in the face, address it with policies, not just words, not not slogans, but you address this with policy that moves this country in the direction where equity and justice are the roots that grow the country going forward. You know, that word justice, you've been, a, you've been in the movements for justice from, for many, many decades. And uh, one of the things that I think is important for people to know about you is that it's taken you from civil rights, black power, the African struggle. Um, for, you know, people like Prexy Nesbitt have been comrades, friends, people like Ralph Featherstone, who we've yes. talked about on this, on this podcast. But it's also taken you to the women's movement. And I think it's interesting that it's taking you to the disabilities rights amusement. Um, you see these things as connected. You see Absolutely. These efforts. In what way? How do you talk about the connections? Absolutely, because they all, they all send out the urgent cry for the dignity of human rights, the rights of, that should be of all human beings, exclusive of race, class, gender. And there are so many connections between all of these movements and how those in power volley to keep all of them disenfranchised um, and all of them to, to provide scattershot attempts just to make it look like something's being done when every effort being done on the part of those addressing these challenges um, is deconstructed. And white supremacy knows how to deconstruct the efforts of movements that address the human rights and dignity of this country. And that the fact that so much was built off the backs of women, of people of color, of indigenous people whose land we all live on, mm -hmm. um, and how the convenience of life has been made easier by the disability rights movement, mm -hmm. those curb cuts, those mm -hmm. electronic doors. All of that is a result of the disability rights movement. So when women are pushing, and mainly women push them, the baby carriages off the curbs, that curb cut makes it accessible for them. But people who, but, but white supremacy and all the things that, the tentacles that are a part of it would want none of that, no matter the fact that it makes life convenient for them as well. That a lot of the, the issues and challenges that arise, they're about everybody. They're mm. about making life meaningful for so many more than just those of us who are in the disability rights movement, the women's movement, mm -hmm. the movements related to people of color. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think you've said it so beautifully, but I, I, it brings to mind James Baldwin and others, but I remember so clearly Baldwin saying, when black people free themselves, they will also free white people. And you say, free white people from what? Well, free them from the precarious position of white supremacy and get them down onto the level of humanity and, and, and off their paranoid, frightened, 
small lives, you know. So I think in a way you've just articulated that. The disability rights movement helped everybody. The women's movement freed is in the process of freeing all of us. Yes, and how the economic empowerment of women has made it possible for families to have greater power at one point. That's, again, that's a movement that a lot of deconstruction has taken place in, a lot of attacks, and those attacks are ongoing. Um, But, you know, Bill, I've got to keep, I've got to keep thinking and talking and focusing not only proactively, but beyond hope, into ways that manifest concretely on a day-to-day basis that make our lives matter. And I have to be honest, it infuriates me that we have to say Black Lives Matter. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah, I agree with you. It's absolutely infuriating (laughs) that I have to announce that my life matters, that Pookie's life matters. Right, it's insane. talk about our lives mattering. Right, right. Now, historically, and in the context of the now, I understand it, but it infuriates me. It absolutely is. And the other thing is, all of these, you know, when people do compassionate things, feeding poor people, housing homeless people, raising money for these efforts, we should not be a country that depends on charity. Public policies should be in place to sustain, support, and make our lives thrive, not charity. Right. And while I always want to be charitable in my heart and in my thinking, it is not the way a country should live. That, that should not be the underpinning for um, GoFundMe to get a house. Public policy should exist to make it possible for people to be housed, fed, clothed, and educated. So true. So true. Right. And I think the other thing in, in concert with the uh, move around the the various moves, because it is not unilateral, but the various moves around white supremacy is the attack on intellectualism. A country needs its intellectuals. It needs people who think deeply, who have the time to develop philosophical constructs that enable all of us to give thoughts to things we might not give thoughts to. The poets, the artists, the same for them. Uh, That those voices are essential to moving us forward. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the Baldwins. We wouldn't have the Toni Morrisons. We wouldn't have the Nguyen's, some of the new intellectuals and writers um, who are bringing such rich works to the table. I'm, I'm amazed. I'm amazed and thrilled by all the rich writing and art and music that's on the table in this moment. And it will be interesting to see how the music configures itself um, post the insurrection um, and what the poets will have to say in terms of building the visions. Um, And I feel a sense of. I have a modicum of optimism regarding Biden and Harris. One, because I have to. Right. Don't want to get too despairing. Yeah, I have to be as optimistic as as I possibly can. But the other day, Biden talked about poetry. Mm -hmm. And my heart beat again. The fact that he knows the term that he reads the words, that he knows that poets are important to the society, and that in the last four years, art and culture and music have just been 
absent yeah. from the platform that so many others who have legally resided at 1600 have provided, even in the worst administrations. There's been art, there's been poetry, there's been great music or there in the people's house, and there was none of it there. Well, that's true. But I mean, in, in your life, you've not only been an activist and engaged with every activist movement I can think of, but you've been engaged with the arts as well. Alice Walker, June Jordan, Toni Morrison. These are also people who've been part of your life and part of, and you've worked uh, in, in a very broad way with so many artists and so Sweet Honey in the Rock. Um, and of course, Angela Davis and and others. Say a word about your engagement with these uh, these very notable people uh, through the decades. These are people who whose work not only informed me and whose works I taught instructor at Millage and at UC Berkeley. But people for whom, like I was the secretary for the legal defense team for Angela's trial. I was um, a promoter and publicist for Alice Walker. Right. Um, I saw how their lives functioned and operated in the context of their day-to-day being, as well as their lives as revolutionaries, as um, people who thought deeply about who we are, our humanity, and what they talk, not only talked about bringing to the table, but what they brought to the table and what they delivered and the impact that Angela, Nikki Giovanni, Alice, continue to have, as well as the voices of those who are now our legacy, mm-hmm. Baldwin. I mean, Baldwin's name will re- reverberate throughout the canons of the of global history mm-hmm. um, in perpetuity, as will the names of the others that I just mentioned, and, and Gwendolyn Brooks, mm-hmm. Chicago's own. Um, so I got to not only read their works, but see how they lived the philosophy and the politics of their works close up. Mm. And that's meant a lot to me in terms of shaping my life and how I've come into formation as a seasoned elder and how it has supported me in shaping the lives of my students and younger generations mm-hmm. um, that I knew these people and work with them, not as celebrities, but as human beings deeply concerned and passionate about something that goes beyond change, mm-hmm. but something that's rudimentary to reconstructing who we are as human beings, mm-hmm. um, especially as women, mm-hmm. uh, who we are as people whose voices were attempted to be smashed and dismantled, but no matter what, white supremacy can't destroy those voices. Mm-hmm. They try at every level, but every attempt has been subverted because those voices continue to resonate at the highest level. And yep. they are now informing um, the movement for Black lives. Right. They're informing indigenous people, and they were informed by the lives of indigenous people. Mm-hmm. They were informed by activists from all over the world. They were informed by the struggles of the anti-apartheid movement and other human rights movements. You know, from the point of view of the powers that be, every time they took a look around in the last several decades, there was Daphne Muse making trouble. Every time they looked around, there you were. Whatever the movement was, whatever the organization was, whatever the fight back was, there she was. 
you must have had some encounters with the FBI or with the state police forces. I mean, you must have. Um, can you uh, tell yeah. us about it? Can you tell us a, just a, uh, a one or two stories about that? Well, one thing that I find rather hilarious is in this moment, I'm rooting for the FBI. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's an irony. Yeah. Wow. It's a risk. And I'm rooting for them boys and girls in terms of this insurrection. You better believe me. Well, so that's the united front against fascism right yes, there, I guess. Yes, absolutely. But um, I was an, I, I came into formation as an activist during the time of J. Edgar Hoover, who was mm. the first head of the FBI. And I managed a bookstore called Drum and Spear. And Hoover hated black bookstores. He had bookstores, period. He had a thing about bookstores. And um, he had a thing about black people and a thing about women, too. He had a real too. thing about black people. <laughs> yeah. um, and Drummond Spear was four miles from the FBI building. Mm. And we had regular visits where the agents would come in the store, rip books off the shelf, make disparaging remarks about them. The store was set on fire twice. Um, it was broken into a couple of times. And that was not by people. And then I was of such significance, which I didn't realize for a long time, that I had my own agent. Mm. And his name was Jim South. Mm. And Jim South and his partner would follow me home in the evening. And as I was leaving my apartment, in the morning, they would follow me to the store in the morning. So the government was paying for my own private security. That's pretty sweet. I wonder if they'd have stepped in if you'd been in trouble. I doubt it. But... I, I, and some nights I was going home $1,000 on me to deposit mm -hmm. in the bank the next day. And that's a question I've often asked if somebody attempted to assault me or rob me, would the boys have stepped up? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so either. I, I don't really think don't so think either. so. So that was in Washington D.C. in the in the sixties, yeah, seventies, early seventies, late sixties, early seventies. And then you came to California, worked with Angela, right? Yes, and then as late as the, I would say the mid nineties, David, who also was very much an activist, my late husband David Landis who also was a, an activist uh, primarily in the disability rights movement, but not exclusively. We were leaving the house one day and we had noticed these guys parked across the street. We lived in East Oakland, two white guys sitting in a car. And didn't kind of think anything of it that day. Then they appeared again and we looked at each other and said, is that for you or me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. Is that for you or me? Yeah. yeah it was a, Drove one off. It's, it's, it's not a competition, but what the heck. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, so, and my situation was not unique. Mm. There were so many of us who were under surveillance. Uh, they even went to, I lived in Phoenix for a brief period of time after Featherstone's uh, assassination. And that just tore me apart. Ralph Featherstone. Who, Say a word about that. Say a word about Ralph. Ralph and Che and Che Payne also. It, Ralph and Che Payne were murdered in an explosion on the eastern shore of Maryland. And um, in 1970, March 9th, 1970. And that absolutely tore me apart. I I I have I had now what I would call a nervous breakdown. Ralph was somebody who intellectually I found fascinating and his intellect and his commitment to struggle translated so effortlessly in his day-to-day -day practice. He was trained as a teacher mm. and he was just superb. He was then the manager of the store of Drum and Spear. And so I moved to Phoenix to spend time with my grandfather who lived there and get myself back together. And the FBI visited people that I, I worked uh, with OIC and I taught at a community college. And in my, um, in my FBI file, I, which 90% of it had been redacted, but there was enough there 
that I realized that they had gone and talked to people there in Phoenix as well. Uh, but again, I wasn't unique. There were so many people who were under surveillance and there were people under surveillance who never realized they were. Right. Right. Well, you mentioned your, your late partner, David Landis, and he was involved in the, in the, um, disability rights movement. And he was a Marxist economist. And, yes. And, uh, Say a word about David and where you, how you met and, and uh, how he got involved in that movement. Well, David um, was my neighbor. I bought my house in 1977. He and two of his friends bought their house across the street in 1980. And uh, I was at the time, I was the head of our community association. And I went over and I very point blankly asked them, white people doing moving up in our neighborhood and you understand where you move. <laughs> I thought you I thought you were gonna say you point blankly asked him to marry you, but it wasn't that. Okay. No. You said what are you white folks doing here? Yeah. I mean do you understand where you live and invited them to join the community organization. They joined, they were very conscientious members, and then David asked me to go hear Carmen McRae with him. Mm-hmm. And the rest was history. <laughs> Five years later, we married. And, and and David was in a wheelchair when you met him. David David was a quad a very high functioning quadriplegic. Right. Played wheelchair rugby, which they now call murder ball. He was on a team called Quadzilla. He worked. He was a freeway flyer, meaning he taught economics at. 50 different colleges. Right. Finally, he got a tenured position at uh, City College. And so, and he also worked um, with an IT uh, organization for um, people with disabilities. So both of us always held multiple jobs and the house became for organizing and hosting people um, in the movements. And when uh, Libby Schaff was just getting her sort of uh, political bona fides and training, um, I remember she came to a community organizing meeting we had at the house. And Tupac and his mother and his little sister stayed there when Tupac, that was in 77, right after I bought Rosa Parks spent a week at the house mm. in tandem with a um, fundraiser we gave for Highlander. Alice Walker's first Bay Area book, book party was there for a book she did on Zora, um, Neil Hurston. And there was a very interesting meeting that took place at the house in uh, the early 80s after The Color Purple was, the book was published. and. Alice went into negotiations for the production of the film with Spielberg and a Martinican filmmaker named Uzan Paul C was very interested in producing, I'm sorry, in directing The Color Purple. And she asked me to call a meeting with Alice and uh, Uzan came back to the Bay Area. She had spent a week at the house the year before she came back to the Bay Area um, she and Alice had this meeting and it turned out Alice had signed an agreement with Spielberg the week before mm. it was on, was just crushed. I'm it so was fascinating yeah. to see the film that Uzan, uh, would have turned out, uh, her, her rendition, her direction of the color purple, mm. I think would have been quite different. Uh-huh. Um, so the home, our home was a cultural <clears throat> hub and um, a lot of people stayed there who just needed a place um, to find themselves, to be with themselves for yeah. short periods of time and sometimes for long periods of time. And I miss it. Although I'm finding my way in Brentwood, I, I miss that iteration of Oakland, some of which... I don't miss the violence. There were some incredibly violent times, and I actually saw somebody murdered, mm-hmm. um, witnessed 
and uh, a young, um, I think he was from Central America and he was only 19 years old. Mm. And I was, I saw it out the window and I ran down the street with a quilt mm. to throw him. And Bill, I swear, I saw that young man's soul leave his body. Mm. I'd never witnessed anything since. Mm. Um, and it was at a time when the Central Amer many Central Americans were moving into Oakland and the warring factions of the gangs between Black people and the Central American gangs and the Mexican gangs and the drug dealing um, and the people who used to come from Walnut Creek to buy the drugs and the UPS drivers and the PG&E. I mean, there, every, there were all kinds of people involved in yeah. dealing and buying of the drugs. But what you miss about it is that you had built a bit of a beloved community within that circumstance. I mean, the circumstance was presented to you, but you found a way, you and your comrades, to build a bit of the beloved community we right did. there. Right there. We and we, we had a community association that was filled with very hardworking and meaningful people. And one of the things I decided to do in 1980 and did it for 22 years is the thought of giving candy at Halloween was something I never, never liked. Mm -hmm. So I decided to give books. Sweet. 22 years, I gave books at Halloween. Damn, I'm, I'm going to take that up. I love that. Yeah, I gave children's books and I did it for so long that the children who became adults came back and asked for adult books. I love it. I love it. At one point, I was giving adult and children's books and I knew some authors and they would donate this. Some of those children have some signed Gwendolyn books. Oh, wow. Some of them have some Thatcher Heard. Some of them have some... Um, I was able to get some Palestinian children's books. There were not a lot, but I was able to. Naomi Shihab Nye oh, I love uh, started yeah. publishing. So, um, and one young man came back one day <clears throat> and um, in sign language, he signed the book to me because he could not. Wow. And I burst into tears. Wow. So it was very powerful. And my neighbors then started giving art supplies. One neighbor started giving uh, dental supplies, floss and toothbrushes and toothpaste. So it, it really, our community organization had deep impact. And of course, we participated in the festivals that took place in the city and in the community, the Malcolm X um, Festival that took place in the park that I'm not recalling the name of right now. Mm -hmm. um, and those are things that people are doing. Those are the kinds of things that people are doing all over the country. While right. you see, you see a lot of the recognizable people in the movement, people who are in the media, um, they're people, the boots, the, the people who work, in the background, mm -hmm. there's still lots and lots of people doing that work, feeding activists, housing activists, making sure that their needs are met so they can hit the streets to do the work that they're doing in the streets and in the front lines of Congress. I mean, look at the squad. Yeah. Look at the work that they're doing. Look at the voices of the women rising in Congress now. Right. It's exciting. People like Cori Bush. I mean, Cori Bush is, uh, you know, as, as real as it gets. I mean, she's very exciting. I mean, she and Stacey Abrams, yeah. oh, my word. Yeah. I mean, there's so many women of color who are now, which is a huge threat to white supremacy. Of course. But the other, of course. The other thing you point to, though, is the unsung. They're not the media stars. They're not the people who make it into the newspapers. But that sense of community building, mutual aid, um, you know, building up the kind of shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm movement at the ground is really, really 
central, and it's great to be reminded of that. I, I guess I want to ask you one question before we before we say goodbye today, and that is, how are you finding, how are you nourishing hope? We've got all these crises, the pandemic, the 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 crisis of uh, white supremacy, the crisis of government, uh, the environmental crisis. Where do you look for hope? Every time I see a child, I say, I have a responsibility. Mm. I got to live a life. I got to live a meaningful life. I got to live a life where there was pain, but there was a lot of joy. They deserve that. Mm. I have a responsibility to future generations, not just my great grandson, not just my grandchildren, not just my daughter, Ananya, but I have a responsibility to see to it that this planet is left as intact as possible for them to be able to breathe, to think, to be. And the overarching matter is in all of this, way beyond white supremacy is climate change. Mm. Mm. Because if we don't deal in a significant way with climate change, none of this is going to matter. None of it is going to matter. That's true. And of course, climate change and white supremacy go together like they mustard absolutely. like mustard and salami. <laughs> because, because they absolutely do. Because who's taking the brunt of this? I mean, uh, it's, not the, it's not the most privileged people with their yachts and private planes. But it is the poor people who are living in the lowlands and getting whacked. So, but you're absolutely right. Where the water, where the water, is is poisoned, in communities of color where industry mm. flourishes, and there are not controls on how these industries are mattered. Um, so, climate change is the biggie, biggie. Well, you know, while the water is rising and the fire is heating up, I have to say, once again, and this is not the first time for me, talking to you has given me more hope, more inspiration, and more illumination. And I thank you for a lifetime of good work and also for spending an hour with me under the tree. Daphne Muse, you're a gem. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. We'll talk soon. Be well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Comrade Daphne Muse, for reminding us that white supremacy is an infectious disease and the virus is a perfect metaphor, that we don't have to wait for some great utopian future to arrive in order to keep moving forward, and that this ongoing civil war in the making is a white folks' war, and we're going to keep on moving forward into harvesting our humanity and seeding the country with the crops that grow to nourish our resilience and vision so that one day the country just might realize the democracy it's been trying to become and or resisting for centuries. Before we leave, I have homework, and the homework is simple to say, excruciatingly difficult to enact. I want you to pay full attention, be astonished at all you see, and then do something about it. Okay, y'all, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends from the podcast Ergo, Damon and Daniel, and to Malik Alim, esteemed producer and engineer and co-thinker. Under the Tree is written and hosted by Bill Ayers, produced and edited by me, Malik Alim. Our music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a project of repair. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind. Until next time.